Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage Podcast. I'm Doug Berkey, your guest host for this week and the executive director here at Mitchell Institute. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. Now, we say it all the time, China's our pacing threat. And if you doubted that, I think the recent headlines helped explain our perspective. Things heated up a lot around Taiwan after Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi made a stop on the island to visit President Tsai. That kicked off a major set of Chinese military drills. Tensions are obviously high, with a lot of people wondering about what will come next. Our goal today is to help provide some insight and context regarding what's happening. We've gathered a group of China experts to dig into this. So with that, I have Brian Hart, a fellow with the CSIS China Power Project. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Hey, you bet. Next, we've got Thomas Corbett, a research analyst who focuses on the Chinese military, technology, and air power at Blue Path Labs. Hey there. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on today's episode. Hey, you bet. And finally, you might remember him from our previous episodes, our very own research analyst, Dan Rice. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure. So, Brian, your team over at CSIS has tracked recent events on this really closely. Can you just bring us up to date on what's been occurring in the Taiwan Strait? I mean, obviously, people have been reading headlines, but you've got a far more sophisticated knowledge than most of us here. This all began when news leaked that Nancy Pelosi was going to, to make a trip to Taiwan, which would make her the first Speaker of the House to go since 1997. So this is a big deal. China obviously sees this as, as a challenge to its territorial claims over, over Taiwan. And so immediately you begin hearing rumors on, among Chinese netizens that, that the PLA should shoot down Secretary Pelosi's planes and you know hyperbolic things like that. We didn't see that happen. We didn't see an escort from the PLA of the plane. So, so Speaker Pelosi landed immediately after she landed. You know, China announced that it would be engaging in large-scale military exercises starting August fourth and lasting through August seventh. So, we we saw that happen after Speaker Pelosi left on August fourth. You see, the the PLA launch a large-scale. Live firing of ballistic missiles and other rockets into the area, with some of those flying over. Taiwan, which is unprecedented, and some of those also falling. I think five of those fell into Japan's exclusive economic zone, uh, which was also unprecedented and a clear sign to Japan. And we can go into a little bit more details later about you know some of the specific steps that that Beijing was trying to take here. But anyway, after after those ballistic missile firings on the fourth, you see August fifth through the seventh, you see continued operations, joint operations around ta- Taiwan in in seven zones and continual steady presence of PLA assets in the area with Taiwan also sending sending its own assets to kind of track some of the PLA's operations in the region. This continued for a few days and and in fact the the PLA extended some of those exercises beyond what they with the original date that they said they would and that wasn't surprising. Well, I talk a little bit later about why, you know, I think the PLA tries to use these exercises as a chance to create uncertainty and ambiguity in the minds of Taiwan and the United States. But anyway, they continued some of these actions. Things hit a little bit of a lull on the military side for a while. And then more recently, there was a tri- another delegation uh, led by Senator Markey to to Taiwan, which kicked off another round of of some exercises around the island, but I think to a lesser extent than the first series. So it's been a couple of weeks of a lot of activities by the PLA. It's been keeping our team busy tracking what they're doing. Yeah, and, and so a lot of a lot of things going on in the street. No, I appreciate you getting us up to speed with with all that and as a good review. But I want to take a step back here. I mean, big picture. You know, what are we looking at right here? What's in play between China and Taiwan? I mean, earlier other podcasts we've discussed. Chinese incursions at Taiwan's air defense identification zone. But what's really driving China here? What are their real goals in this sort of scenario? I think really that the PLA and, and Beijing more broadly have, have a couple of goals that they're trying to make here. Uh, one is really to to show how different things are from the 1995-1996 Taiwan Strait crisis, which is the last kind of crisis we had in in the area and 
So you see them trying to push further, get closer to the island to kind of make a, a bit of a, a statement about where the PLA is compared to 25 years ago. Different maneuvers, different unprecedented actions, really trying to make a bold statement to kind of punish Taiwan, you know, send a signal to the United States and its allies. I, I think one of the goals here was really also to drive up political dysfunction within Taiwan to put pressure on President Tsai Ing-wen and, and her Democratic Progressive Party. So the, a lot of efforts to kind of create divisiveness there that we saw some of those zones being targeted specifically near areas that are kind of supports for and 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 the DPP. So that was certainly I think it's important to when you think about the military actions being taken here to to keep in mind that Beijing really intends for all these military actions to have equally important political statements. Yeah, and if I had to add something on here, I think Part of this whole series of events, too, comes down to the cross-strait relation between China and Taiwan. Obviously, there's a ton of tension between that. And when Speaker Pelosi did decide to visit Taiwan, you know, China, I, I think China might have felt like it needed to react in a strong way, right, to make those points and to actually demonstrate that it does not really approve of that kind of visit by a U.S. representative. And I think there was also a little bit of internal confusion as to, you know, whether or not this is an official delegation. You know, did President Biden actually say go to Taiwan, et cetera? And that caused them to really have to make a statement. And then on our part, right, there came to a point, and you might have seen this in the reporting, but it, it appeared that Beijing and Washington were almost forced to a stalemate that, you know, if, if Speaker Pelosi didn't show up on the island that the U.S. would lose some sort of diplomatic, you know, they would lose some diplomatic face, so to speak, and that if China didn't react in a very strong way, that they also would lose some diplomatic speak. And Brian, you kind of mentioned it on the fiery rhetoric, but I think those dramatic actions that we did see the PLA take, they might have actually been pushed even further by that response and kind of by that anticipation by the Chinese populace of really showing, hey, look, China's on the main stage now. We have more military power than we did before, and we can react to this kind of contingency. Yeah, I, I want to yeah add to that. I think I think you're right, Dan. And and one of the things that I would say that that made this visit by Pelosi particularly an issue right now is all the political uh, dynamics going on within within China. So that's right. Uh, her, her trip came a day after the the 95th anniversary of the PLA, which is obviously a big big deal for, for the PLA and, and for propaganda purposes. It came among the timing of the CCP's annual Beidai Hu meetings, which are important kind of private political meetings that kind of set the agenda for the next couple of months or years. And of course, as, as I'm sure many of the listeners here know, we have the, or China has the, the 20th party Congress coming up in just a few months. And so right. you put all that together and you really have a situation where the timing of this couldn't have been couldn't have been that much worse uh, in terms of creating the most kind of intense response from Beijing. Yeah, well said. So I think you all made excellent points and you were 100% perfectly correct about all that stuff. One thing I would like to add is that these these military exercises are exercises too. Now, like it's, it's also important to consider that like the PLA has been facing recurring issues with its personnel quality and their training methods. There are constant internal reports about problems with realism and practical training. And they're constantly talking about how much they're improving their methods. And every week, it seems, their methods are getting better and better and better. And they're trying to be more and more realistic. Now, on one hand, that may be true. On the other hand, if they're constantly talking about reforms, that kind of implies the constant need to reform. And so if you look at some of these training exercises, they often have problems of routineness and lacking realism. So... You know, besides signaling to Taiwan about China's feelings on independence and to the U.S. about its ties with the island, I think it's also a pretty unique opportunity to test out some of this hardware and train its personnel how to use them in the location where they're most likely going to be seeing action. China hasn't seen a hot war in decades, and these exercises are probably the closest thing they'll have to the real thing. Now, right now, they're really focused on jointness between the branches and the logistics capability for complex operations. The ability to move this many personnel and pieces of hardware around the island and to practice live fire exercises seems really valuable. 
So, you know, geography matters a lot in what we're talking about right now. I know this is a podcast. It, it's tough to, to sketch things out. But could you give us an idea of where the exercises were happening just to help get us some bearings here? Was this, you know, happening in normal locations or we see pop-ups per usual or was this somewhere different? I think these these exercises really were unprecedented. So this is this is the closest that the PLA has gotten to Taiwan. The the encircling of the of the island was, it was really what caught my eye as soon as the the announcement was made of where these exercise zones would be placed. So if you look at and you compare to the 1995-1996 exercises, those were much closer to mainland China. They were kind of lining the the Taiwan Strait more than they were encircling the island. So you know, the inclusion of, of the zones around the island made a huge kind of psychological difference, I think, for Taiwan and was meant to to very clearly send the suggestion that, that the PLA has the capabilities to enforce a blockade and, and take any other steps they need to, they you know, they might want to take. But I would also add one other thing that I think hasn't quite made it into some of the descriptions yet is that one other difference was with the 1995-1996 exercises, those were stretched out over a series of months. So the fact that these initially six exercise zones and actually a seventh was added a day later, when you put all of that in it happening in the same week, it really creates a much more intense response from the PLA than we've seen in the past. Really the opportunity for the PLA to to flex its muscle and show that it could conduct some of these operations that would protect amphibious forces, you know, that were preparing for staging for an invasion. So it really was signaling in a kind of much bigger scale than we've seen in the past. And so, yeah, I would say this is this is definitely different from what we've seen them, them do in the past. And I think that was very intentional uh, by Beijing's part to really want to respond in, in their view in a proportional way. Yeah, Brian, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. And actually, uh, I was going to mention something about the timing, too. It is really shocking to see how condensed this time frame was for them conducting something on this scale. And, and one thing about the geography, too, that really stands out is the locations, right? Specifically, the center line that historically has been kind of an unspoken, unwritten deal where the Chinese military would not cross the center line, the Taiwanese military would not cross the center line towards China. And it was it's used as a status quo in order to make sure that there's no conflict in the air, you know, in the strait itself. And so actually with what we've seen with these exercises, and I know Brian, CSIS has tracked this, is that there are a lot of fighters and electronic intelligence aircraft that have crossed the median line repeatedly. And that's really a glaring difference from what we saw. I know we don't have maps right here, but if anybody's interested in hearing more about the history of the median line, you can check out one of our earlier podcasts that we did maybe a month and a half ago. But the bottom line here is that that median line had created an artificial buffer in between the PLA and the Republic of China militaries. And now that they've continuously crossed that center line, it does cause questions as to whether or not that will become the status quo. And it really signals that they're being far more aggressive over the airspace around Taiwan. Yeah, 100%. I think I think building off of that just a little bit, what specifically we saw some of these zones being geographically placed to completely straddle the median line. One of the zones did that and so on that on that front you're seeing some of those naval vessels cross the median line regularly through that zone, but also to Dan's point, the the Ada's incursions and the the median line crossings have really ramped up. So, what we've seen in terms of the median line crossings right now are completely not comparable to what was happening before. Before median line crossings were pretty rare, and over the last more than two weeks, we've seen daily crossings right. with some sometimes you know I think the the highest we had was thirty aircraft crossing the the median line, and even more pointedly. In the past, most of the crossings have taken place on the very ends of the median line. And we've actually seen PLA aircraft crossing much closer to the center of that line, which is also pointedly due west and close to Taiwan, to Taipei, the capital of Taiwan. So right. China has really used that there. as an opportunity to, to, to push things as far as it can and to, to kind of pinpoint how, it, how much pressure it wants to put on on a daily basis. And Brian, I think also, too, it was notable that 
some of the naval exercises were actually happening in the Taiwanese territorial waters. Is that correct? Yeah. So that was that was a key thing that was emerged. I think three, if I'm not mistaken, three of the zones that mapped out clearly crossed into to Taiwan's territorial waters. But I do want to emphasize one thing here that's important. To my knowledge, there was there was I think some disinformation on this from the, from the Chinese side. But to my knowledge, no vessels actually went into the nautical within Taiwan's nautical boundaries, and that's that's important because again, this was a way for. China to send a signal by mapping out these zones in a ways that cross over into to Taiwan's territorial waters without actually sending sending vessels into the water there precisely. So again, that's a way for them to to ratchet up the political pressure without necessarily escalating on the military front. So if you guys had just a few minutes with a member of Congress and you had to explain the significance of this, and I mean I'm talking brass tacks. How would you sum it up? Sure, I, I can kick it off. That you know, one sentence takeaway is that China, with these exercises, might be trying to break the status quo and assert dominance over the airspace and territorial waters around Taiwan. You guys agree with that? Any other thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one hundred percent. I think that's that's the main goal here is to to try to upset the status quo and shift it permanently. I would just, the only thing I would kind of add to that is I think, and I think we can discuss this a little bit further at the end, but one of the big takeaways I have from this is this is not, I think, the last large-scale exercise we'll see like this in the coming years. And I think one of the things I worry about and other PLA watchers, I think, worry about is the PLA can continue to to ramp up these kind of large-scale exercise to mobilize large amounts of troops. And it makes it much harder for them in the future for the United States or Taiwan to get a clear sense of what they're going to do. Will they start an exercise and end it like they have now or going forward, you know, if a couple months or years from now, will they use these kind of large scale exercises, a repeat of this to push further, to take an outlying island or to put in place a large scale blockade or to even carry on further to an invasion? Because so broadly speaking, that's what worries me is that they may ramp up these kind of exercises going forward. Yeah, good deal. So obviously, this is a big move to hold these exercises. But anytime we see this sort of activity at this scale, you know, it helps folks learn a lot more about Chinese capabilities, you know, the concepts of operation and strategy. So what were some of the main observations each one of you took away from these recent events? I mean, was this more reinforcing what you knew or were there fresh discoveries? I can kick us off. So I already mentioned the really big new development, which was just the sheer number of incursions over that center line. And that is very concerning. But something else that kind of caught my attention was the number of more modern aircraft that the PLAF was flying, talking about like Su-30s, J-11s, J-16s. They also had some H-6s mixed in there. And while it's not necessarily like groundbreaking, it does seem like the number of Su-30s specifically that were flying in these sorties were much higher and specifically across the center line. And I mean, I've been tracking some of the PLAF airfields that are right along the coastline. And there was one base that popped up is Shuemen Airfield, which could be the area that the Su-30s are operating out of. So I think the takeaway from that is that if they're using these more modern aircraft, they're sending them over the center line, it means that they have to be stationed closer to Taiwan. They have to be able to operate out of these airfields. And, you know, they're thought of as deployed airfields, but I think, you know, we might find out that they these airfields specifically might have more capacity for these kinds of longer term or more extended operations with some of these more modern aircraft. Yeah, building off that, I think the PLA is, and, and China has really sought to play up the fact that it's it's flying modern aircraft in there, including to the extent of, of disinformation. So yeah. very early in the in the start of this crisis, I think the PLA put out messages that they had sent Su-35 aircraft into the areas around Taiwan, which the Taiwan Ministry of Defense immediately responded back, no, you didn't. And so there was a lot of contradictory language there with, with the PLA trying to, to say that they have these. I, but And I did see reports specifically of, of them flying J-20 aircraft around the area, which they called unprecedented. I remember seeing that in some reports. And, and one of the interesting things, too, we've seen a bit of action with some of the 
the Y20 refueling variant, the really large new indigenously made minus the engines, I think tanker aircraft did was involved in one of the ADA's incursions that happened a couple, about two weeks ago. So they have been trying to to dance point to to pull out some of these more modern aircraft and and to really flex the muscle in that respect. There was also one other thing that I wanted to mention that I don't know if it was necessarily unprecedented, but there were a lot of reports of cyber attacks occurring on Taiwan's government and different companies within Taiwan. And that in itself represents just a different set of capabilities that we're really seeing that China can actually start to use when they're considering some of the options that they might want to use in order to either suppress air activity in Taiwan or maybe just confuse some of the processes that the government might have to take, right? So suppressing different capabilities through cyber is relatively newly demonstrated specifically over Taiwan. Yeah, I think you guys made excellent points about all the hardware and the, the nitty gritty. I think taking a step back, I kind of want to return to a point that Brian made before where my overall takeaway is that this is not going to stop. <laughs> We're going to expect to see this kind of stuff more and more going into the future. I think what's really interesting is reading Chinese strategists leading up to this event. You can kind of see how all the pieces were already laid for this turning out the way it did. There's a concept, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with, called active defense, where essentially China justifies anything it does as being defensive, that China feels that it needs to defend its territorial sovereignty, including its claims over Taiwan at all costs. And in order to do this, you know, it justifies that using offensive tactics, it seizes the initiative wherever possible to the point of even launching full-scale preemptive attacks. Because China claims Taiwan as its territory, this is all considered to be defensive actions, justified and carried out in the name of peace. And also, Chinese strategists have this bizarre, haughty confidence in their own ability to completely control diplomatic crises and de-escalate any situations they find themselves in. So when you combine this confidence in their abilities to walk back escalation and their beliefs that all of their actions are justified in the name of self-defense, you get some pretty egregiously provocative actions, such as the stuff we've seen recently. As you said before, I would not expect this to end anytime soon. Now, we've seen a real surge in the Chinese military buildup. So why is that happening? And, and how does it affect their ability to project power in the Indo-Pacific, especially when you look at a, a situation like this? Sure. So I think across the group today, we've mentioned several different reasons for why it's happening, right? And some of the longer term goals also play into this. You might have heard of 2035, China wants to have a modernized military and by 2049, they want to have a world-class military. This is part of the pathway towards that, right? We have seen multiple different services within the PLA actually carrying out these exercises, the rocket force, probably the strategic support force for some cyber. Then you also have the PLAF, you've got the plan, you've got the, the PLA army. All of those different services are actually exercising, demonstrating that they may have the capability to come to carry out joint operations. And, and I think Brian might have mentioned this a little bit earlier, but there is obviously some obfuscation to this from the PLA. Maybe they're overblowing exactly what they're capable of doing. But the bottom line is that they are getting more advanced. They are getting faster, which is a really big deal for us, for the U.S., as we're thinking about how we can respond to it. And they're doing it consistently, right? Just just kind of thinking on that longer timeline too, people might have noticed that the that China is trying to create one of its first indigenous, well, its first indigenous strategic stealth bomber, the H-20, as it's being called. And that actually adds to that list of capabilities or that it could employ when it comes to great power competition and specifically having that dual use kinetic or nuclear payload that it can potentially use to strike things like Guam and push the U.S. out even farther. So I think there's that, you know, there's a little bit of the geopolitics and the regional balance of power in play here. There's certainly a large component 
of the, the PLAF and the CCP's plan on modernizing its forces, demonstrating that for deterrence effect. And it's all kind of coming to a head with these exercises. Yeah, I'll I'll touch on one one element here that I think is interesting, just because it's something I have kind of worked on a lot in the past, which is China's aircraft carriers. So, one of the interesting dynamics here that that's a very I think poignant kind of portrayal of how things have flipped since the last Taiwan crisis is, is the presence of aircraft carriers. So during the 1995-1996 crisis you have the U.S. sending in two aircraft carrier fleets into into the waters. One, I believe, went into the Taiwan Strait, and the other went into areas around Taiwan. It was the largest flexing of U.S. military muscle in, in Asia since, I think, Vietnam War. So that was a huge, huge sign of American military power and a sign at the time of, of the PLA's impotence and inability to to kind of counter that capability. And, and it really was part of the, the reason that China ultimately kind of backed down in, in that crisis. Fast forward to, to now, you do not have U.S. aircraft carriers entering the region. We had, I think there were reports of, of I think, one carrier and, and supporting ships and I think an amphibious ship of the U.S. Navy kind of staying in the waters well east of Taiwan, not entering into the strait, not coming close to Taiwan, which PLA commentator, I think I remember seeing Colonel Joel Bullitt, like commenting on this and saying, you know, this was a sign of America staying cautiously away. And in, you know, in contrast to that, you have for the first time the the PLAs, one of the PLAs aircraft carriers being involved. So in the early days of, I think even before Pelosi arrived in, in Taiwan, you have you see signs that these aircraft carriers are starting to move. I think both of the China's two existing carriers left their home ports. And I believe the second carrier, the Shandong, was involved in, in some of the operations around the island, which, again, was their sign of them flexing their muscle. But I'll just add one little note on that, which is if you think about the role of aircraft carriers, they're really for farther power projection. So in a real Taiwan contingency a PLA aircraft carrier may play a role, but it'll probably be a secondary role because Taiwan is close enough to the mainland that they, the PLA can really project a lot of power from from land, for, you know, with with aircraft taking off from land. So really, the here the the aircraft carriers are are really powerful symbolic move to kind of show how things have shifted. Um, and I'll just note that I'm sure many of your listeners know that. China launched a third aircraft carrier about two months ago that's far more capable than its first two. It'll be a few years before we see that entering service, I think, but that will undoubtedly be another tool in, you know, the PLA Navy's toolkit to try to to, to push around Taiwan and, and to kind of challenge the U.S. aircraft and, and, and naval assets in the region. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Like, China's at a massive advantage in a Taiwan Strait crisis, and just in general, because they they know what's going to happen. This is They've been gearing for this for 30 years. They know exactly where the conflict's going to happen. And they're right there. And to go back to your point, I, I completely agree with that. I think the aircraft carriers aren't really for Taiwan. I think they're more for China's general blue water Navy. That, you know, they're trying to keep all of their sea lines open, especially around the, the Indian Ocean, especially around Southeast Asia. You know, China... It, I think 70% of their oil comes through those straits. And they, they need the capabilities to keep those open under all situations. And that's a massive, massive vulnerability if there ever a conflict between China and the U.S. We know how vulnerable they are in the Straits of Malacca, and they know just how vulnerable they are in the Straits of Malacca, right? And so these aircraft carriers are more likely for those kinds of situations where China needs to be able to project power outside of its immediate area. So yeah, great, great point. Absolutely. So I get what you guys are saying on, on some of these points of modernization and increased capability, but I also want to push back and say they just bought themselves a whole new set of challenges with each one of these investments. And, you know, look, great, they have aircraft carriers, but I don't think it's news to anyone that keeping those things off the ocean floor, it takes a lot of work and it takes quite a bit of power just to keep that thing alive. You know, huge targets. Looking at regional sway and and how they're they're playing these elements with that, you also can get regional blowback. So what are your thoughts on this? Because just as much as they step forward, it 
brings on a whole new set of responsibilities and challenges that they have to they have to sustain and think about. You know, we just went down to the Naval Aviation Museum and dug down there. You briefed us on the idea of the F-14s playing nothing but defense of the carriers when they're put out there. And I think, you know, that example can actually have some analogies or can be analogous to what China might face as it's trying to develop these things. I know they were trying to put G-16s on the aircraft carriers, but that, you know, that requires a whole different set of capabilities. They need to train how to use that. And Brian did suggest that it'll be several years until these things are operational or actually fielded. So there will be a lot of learning. That certainly requires a lot of investment and time in figuring out how to use them. And I, I think you do make a really good point too, which is, you know, at the end of the day, aircraft carriers inherently are fairly vulnerable, especially when you're thinking about things like like an LRASM, right? Should should be able to do good effect against an aircraft carrier from a standoff platform. So I think maybe part of this and maybe what they were trying to get at by building these is just that, honestly, they have the capability to, that they have the technological know-how to put a carrier together, which is no small feat, how they're actually going to employ it. And I do agree with both Tom and Brian that it's probably in power projection, but I'm not entirely sure if they figured out exactly what that looks like, right? For all of the reasons that you mentioned and that I brought up. So it, it is very difficult. And when it comes to the regional pushback, there there may be a bit of that, right? A lot of these countries in Southeast Asia, when it comes to geopolitics, they like to hedge really strongly. And, you know, there's a big difference between sailing an aircraft carrier or a SAG around and saying, hey, we're doing freedom of navigation, upholding international law, right? And then another player or actor sailing an aircraft carrier around saying, we're protecting our internal waters, right? That sends a completely different signal. And I I think, or, you know, it, it's very possible that the countries in question in, the, in Southeast Asia might react much more viscerally to that kind of pushing and bullying coming out of, of the player. Yeah. And where I was going with that in many ways is, you know, look at what happened with Russia. You know, they do the power play in Ukraine and they just sold a ton of F-35s throughout right. Europe and unified NATO like nothing else. And so, you know, does does this kind of play over Taiwan cause the Asian nations to to tighten up and and have stronger stance to guard against Chinese um, advances, to tighten up with the United States, other allies, et cetera? It, it, that's just kind of where I was going on that. Yeah. So... You know, I don't want to hog the whole floor here, but my gut feeling on it is that if you do get a much more aggressive, much more power projecting country or China takes on that role, that it's very possible that we will see countries uniting against that and pushing back because it will interfere with their own sovereign interests in the area. And I think, you know, the U.S. has done a decent job of actually really recently ramping up our efforts in the region and trying to create more diplomacy in those countries and trying to really shore up the relationships there on the diplomatic and more friendly level, right? And not necessarily through using hard power. So I made a grave mistake today. I read the Global Times, strongly don't recommend, <laughs> but right on its front page, it's really fascinating because they have two big articles. One is them currently fuming at Japan for having similar plans for a parliamentary group to visit Taiwan and also threatening Europe against economic decoupling. I think the timing is pretty clear about why they're doing these kinds of things. And you're talking about regional blowback, you know, not only even from the area, but also think about the blowback on Taiwan itself. Right. I like I believe PRC spokesperson like explicitly said that they're doing this to strengthen the, t the confidence and courage of forces inside the island and abroad that oppose independence and promote reunification. The thing is, though, I, I think China kind of created its own blowback by not having these kinds of military exercises earlier. And that, like, before when we had these delegations, this isn't the first time this has happened. They would usually grumble and, and saber rattle, but they would never have something this huge before. And so people kind of got used to them not really 
being too serious about it. And so when you, when you kind of take away that feeling of safety that they have, people react a lot more stronger, whereas if they would have done things like this from the beginning, they'd probably have a lot less pushback. And so it's going to be really, really difficult for the KMT to try to smooth things over. I, I believe a KMT official recently received a, a lot of criticism over a planned trip to China following the exercises. And kind of tellingly, they justified their visit by saying that they were going there to support Taiwanese citizens not to de-escalate the situation. If you look at Chinese reporting, of course, they're saying that the whole thing was to de-escalate and that, you know, it's really good that Taiwan is coming in and, and handling things responsibly. But yeah, I, I absolutely think we can expect some serious blowback in the coming weeks. I'll just add on one one part here, which is that I, my sense based on, you know, the the broad set of actions that that Xi Jinping under Xi Jinping China has taken over the years is Beijing really doesn't actually care that much what other countries think about it in in the sense that China is going to do what it's going to do and I think they they really think about things in terms of hardball politics in if if not all of their if, if all of their objectives from from these exercises weren't met I think China just their leaders see this as they have no choice but to respond strongly for both internal and and external audiences to show to show their resolve uh, and and they know that blowback is going to come with that and and we've seen that in their wolf warrior diplomacy you know they're they're really ag- aggressive diplomats over the years so i think china decided we're going to do this we're going to see what we can get out of it but at the end of the day it's all part of a, a process of, of Xi Jinping making China more assertive in the region and around the world. And on the issue of aircraft carriers, I think the same thing kind of plays. I think you might see some some regional players start to push back against that. But at the end of the day, China wants to be able to project power. And I think years from now, decades from now, you are going to see a PLA Navy fielding aircraft carriers, probably nuclear powered, you know, with with escorts and and with resupply ships that can let them move far beyond China's near waters. And and I don't think the region is really prepared for what that looks like. I don't think the United States is prepared for what that looks like, because for so long, the United States has largely been able to traverse the the waters pretty uncontested. And so this is this is part of a long term process of, of China really asserting itself and doing so with every bit of military capabilities that it has. And, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that going forward. Well, all I can say is I hope they do because <laughs> keeping an aircraft carrier alive and viable is one of the most resourceful, intensive military exercises possible. We know it better than anybody since we do it all the time. And I jokingly tell our staff, I think one of the best things we could do to impose costs on China is actually just give them all the carriers we're, uh, we're decommissioning <laughs> and ratchet up those costs on them. So have at it. I also thought we should give all of the decommissioned F-14s to Iran because they wouldn't <laughs> have a military budget after they got done trying to sustain all those and keep them airworthy. So, you know, I, I look at these things a little differently. But uh, I would just say one quick thing. Sorry, but one that's something I hark on a lot too is this huge naval buildup is going to mean that a lot of these ships are going to require refitting and maintenance around the same time. So you can build 20 ships in a year, but that means you're going to have to repair 20 ships in a year a decade from now. So I would hate to be the person tracking maintenance costs for the PLA Navy in a couple of years. No, that's a really good point. It's all about why you need to get out of that house that was newly built <laughs> and and now is coming up on the time and, and all the furnace and everything else is going to fail. Okay, so enough talking about what China's going to do to us. What are we going to do about it? I mean, have you guys seen any developments coming out of PACOM and our allies and how we can respond for this sort of pop-up crisis in longer-term plays that are going to be in the mix here? And you know, are there big lessons learned here that you'd recommend that they'd really dial in on? So I really did not see too much that occurred. And maybe, Brian, Tom, you, you guys might have picked up on something else. You know, F-35s became, quote-unquote, fully operational out of Alaska. That's pretty far away. It's not really on Kadena or too close in, though they could flex over there relatively easily. There was, and Brian, you alluded to it earlier, I think it was the USS Reagan that was stationed somewhere off of Taiwan. But mm-hmm. bottom line, we didn't really do very much because of this. What you know, what could we potentially do? 
about this is have a stronger response. You know, if China wants to or is trying to break the status quo, we need to demonstrate, hey, you know, somebody here is to check, to check you and to make sure that you will not be able to achieve what you want to around this area. That could come in the form of diplomacy. It could come in the form of shifting around military power. You know, one of the best things that we've discussed at the Mitchell Institute to do is roll out a B-2 somewhere around nearby, and that sends a really strong message. We could have done something like that, or I guess we could still do something like that, right? In the future, I think the main thing, and again, Brian, you highlighted this in the beginning of the podcast, is that the this was a very clear example. The timeline and the time frame to react to this kind of exercise or this kind of occurrence is really, really short now. So we need to have really flexible options, right? Things that can respond on a dime or if that they get the call tonight that something is going down, they can be there within a few hours time or as soon as possible. And, you know, from my perspective, that is not going to be large ships steaming away at 40 knots. That's going to be something much more flexible that we need to have in the inventory. And, and of course, you know, at the Mitchell Institute, we always advocate for air power. So it is the most flexible response that we've got. So we need to be resourcing that and continuing on the path that we're on, which is buying things that are more flexible. The B-21 is a great example of a platform that has the kind of response. It has that kind of imaging power that the B-2 brings, but you know, it also can do different mission sets that we don't necessarily have full capability or, or the massive capability to do right now that could send a clear message when China does these kinds of activities. Two quick points to wrap up for me. I, I think, number one, there was chatter months ago within the Biden administration that China might use uh, some development this year to to provoke a, a Taiwan Strait crisis. And that's exactly what they've done. And if the Biden administration, you know, didn't roll out some response that it would wanted to because it ended up being prepared, then that's a failure on the Biden administration's part. I don't know, you know, exactly what they still have planned for the future. But one of the things is we know that China is going to continue to do things like this. And so we need to be prepared for that. Number two is I think if China does want to, to use an exercise like this as, as training for something, we should take that seriously. And, and one of the things that I think we're not considering enough is the range of possibilities that China could, could pursue. So for me, a blockade of the island, a very kinetic and intense blockade is a very real possibility that we need to be prepared for and that especially Taiwan needs to be prepared for. So stockpiling resources, creating redundant communications backups so that if China severs undersea cables, Taiwan can continue to, to have access to communications and the internet. So many things that can be done to proactively prepare and make it harder for for China to put in place, you know, cost, impose costs like that. Anything that Taiwan can do to, to increase its preparedness for that and anything that the United States within reason can do to support that, I think that's what we need to focus on going forward. Yeah, since since you guys already hit on the hardware, I'll, I'll talk about the, the diplomatic and political side. Yeah, I, I completely agree talking about blockades. I, I absolutely think that's a possibility. I think ultimately for the short term, a more realistic goal that China has for this is that they're I think they're kind of looking to get people in Taiwan, especially to self-censor and consider China's wishes before they take actions. That they want us to think like, oh, well, you know, maybe they'll react, maybe they'll do another huge exercise again. And so maybe we shouldn't, we should turn down these delegations that are coming. I think ultimately that's probably going to backfire because the U.S. has a very long, very strong independent rebel streak that'll probably prompt more people to poke China in the eye just purely because they're telling us not to. So I, I think we need to work well with our partners and, you know, I've, I said it before, I think we've seen great action out of Japan and Australia. I would love to see more action out of Europe and South Korea. But again, I think in this kind of situation, China, they want to come off as a defender of their sovereignty, but I think they're coming off as more of like a capricious bully just because of how completely out of the realm 
that this response was compared to how they handled things before. So yeah, I would, I would love to see more coordinated action as a global community rather than just individual countries going at it and handling China alone. No, those are really good guys. And I appreciate those insights. One thing I would add is, and we talk about this a lot here at Mitchell, the need for more U.S. and allied capacity. We fundamentally are sized to be a one more force. And right now we've got crises underway, both in Pacific and Europe. And we do not have the ability from a capacity perspective to deal with that concurrently. And that simply incentivizes aggression that can escalate to zones that we really lack off ramps to deal with effectively. And so if you're talking about a handful of F-22s, a handful of B-2s, a handful of F-35s, Navy assets, you know, down the line, we do need to be very, very smart and prudent in how we size those forces. And I think we're kidding ourselves in, in the way we talk about risk. And it is way de- easier to, to deter action than to actually have to deal with a, a hot conflict. We're getting really tight on time here. And so I do want to throw one last question at you, though. If we were to see this sort of Chinese exercise in, in five years, what would you expect to see? And, and I want to break this down in terms of technologies, strategies, and diplomatic aims. I think one thing that you'll see is another effort by Beijing to push the envelope further to make more moves that are unprecedented. So there were so many moves that that they did this week that were very intentionally unprecedented because it shifts the status quo more in their favor. We've already talked about the median lines and, and just the unprecedented scope of this military exercise. One thing we didn't touch on was flying of unmanned vehicles around Taiwan's outlying islands, which was unprecedented and, and a provocative move and, and a, you know, a way of delegitimizing the concept of Taiwan having airspace. So there were so many moves that, that that China took. And by and large, what I expect is whatever happens next with with the next Taiwan Strait crisis or the next event like this, it will be even bigger. It'll be more provocative and, and it'll really try to, to push the envelope even further for Beijing. Yeah. Another thing, Brian, like you mentioned, there were so many unprecedented things. Another one there, too, was the DF-15 going over Taipei. I mean, that was a very clear statement. You know, If you look at some unclassified range rings of this DF-15, they pretty much shot it to what the extent of that unclassified level is. So that was a clear demonstration of technology. I think five years from now, you know, having just recently participated in, in that CSIS war game, actually, I think they're going to make those magazines a lot deeper. So they've got plenty of options to respond to either you know, Taiwanese counterattacks or any other actor joining in the fight, whether it be the US or Japan or, or another country in the region. So they're probably going to really you know, double down on what they've already started to develop, make sure that they've got the ability to complete like the targeting of actually these long-range strikes, right? Making sure they can hit the targets they want to. That would probably require more and more robust space-based systems. Trying to actually, you know, build those out even farther, making sure that there's a very little opportunity for any adversary to degrade those systems, shoring up the defense of these things. That, that kind of like covers it for technology, right? For strategies, I think I think you're right, Brian. I think. It's all escalatory from here. And, you know, there's at some point you can't really make any more unprecedented moves, right? If you've done it all, you've done it all. And that's got to be the kind of the tipping point that we need to win. And then diplomacy, I think we have made it pretty clear across all of us today that, you know, one of China's primary goals, the CCP's primary goals is to quote-unquote, reunify Taiwan with mainland China. So until that is accomplished, I think the CCP is going to believe that they haven't completed their job. And it is one of those check boxes they've got to tick off in order to achieve the, quote-unquote, rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Yeah, I think five years is the perfect time frame. Brian mentioned this before, and I think it's a great point, that we really do need to consider China's domestic audience for these kinds of things. right? Often in the West, we don't really think about that a whole lot, but a big reason why this is coming up is that 
right now she will be up for his third term now and this is going on and then in five years he'll be up for his fourth term or his successor will be looking to consolidate their support if something major were to happen five years is exactly when it would probably go down i mean right now you do have to wonder how much of this is because of chinese domestic concerns right now we're in very interesting times she is coming up for an unprecedented third term the housing market is struggling local banks are failing Zero COVID is facing massive social blowback. China's mobility, China's social mobility is stagnant. It's coming in just under Costa Rica's. Now there's, there's good scholarship out there that points to hardline sovereignty issues as being very important to Chinese populace. However, importantly, the actual timeline for resolving them isn't important to a lot of people. And what this means is that these kinds of situations tend to come up in a break glass in case of domestic unrest situation, where China can either choose to ignore them or, or go full scorched earth, depending on how much they need to distract the populace. Five years is most likely when these kinds of things will come up again. In terms of technology, I don't think it'll look so much different than today. I think we'll definitely see more use of drones, and particularly drone swarms. That's definitely something China's interested in. But in general, I think we, we kind of Boogeyman, China, and the PLA in terms of their technological capabilities and their ability to innovate in a short-term scale. They, they tend to throw a lot of money at things, but it doesn't really mean that they're going to see a lot of breakthroughs and see a lot of high-tech new things on the battlefield. Well, guys, I really appreciate all this. We've come to the end of our time for, for this episode of the podcast. So again, thank you so much for taking the time to catch us up on this topic. It's so important. And again, it, it took us past the headlines, and that was really the objective. So big thanks to all of you. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Tom and Brian, for joining us. It was a pleasure to be here with you guys. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining us in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning into today's show. And if you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit the like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas where you think we should explore further. And as always, you can join in the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. You can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.